Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Tingle. Welcome to the Jimmy Tingle Show, appropriately named, I think. This is our first episode of our video show and podcast, and I couldn't be happier today to introduce my first guest. My friend Colin Quinn and I go way back. We go back to the 1980s in the comedy clubs in Boston and in New York. I got to meet him way back in the day. He was a big influence to me a good friend, and we've been friends ever since, going back, whatever that is, 35 years, 40 years, whatever it is. But he's done a lot of great things. You may know him from Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. He's been in a ton of movies, and he's been pursuing the one-person show format for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years or so, and he's done a ton of them, and they're all great. And I want to talk to him about that because he's in Boston this Thursday night, doing his show at the Wilbur Theater. So please welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only from New York City, Mr. Colin Quinn. Yes. Hi, Jimmy. We first met, I saw Jimmy Tingle. They go, you got to watch this guy, Jimmy Tingle. And I was up here at Boston in one of these clubs. And he goes on stage and he goes, folks, <laughs> I'm the pink wonder. <laughs> and then a minute later, he goes, the czar of Watertown. <laughs> and the crowd's looking at him. He had like 10 nicknames that he gave himself. <laughs> he just got his haircut. He goes, folks, Spike Tingle. <laughs> it was a hilarious act, but it was just, he was very unique. I knew from the beginning. I said, this guy's really great. <laughs> He's really great. A man of many nicknames. Yes, he gave himself like eight nicknames during that set. Well, Colin... You know, when I was trying to get booked at the Ding Ho, Barry what? Cremins, I was the bar daytime bartender and open mic performer. I said, Barry, why don't you book me? He goes, Jimmy, I can't tell Stephen Wright and Lenny Clark and, you know, Paula Poundstone not to come in on Saturday night because we're going to book Tingle. He goes, you got to start your own room. Start your own room. You can book it. You can host it. You'll get all sorts of practice. So I, I found that room in Watertown, Mark's Pub in Watertown. I think it was Lenny or, or Barry nicknamed me the Czar of Watertown because you didn't get into Watertown, Massachusetts unless you went through me. So that's how I got that nickname. But I think that whole idea of creating your own gigs, taking the initiative on your own is something that I'm still doing with this podcast. I mean, you've been doing for many years with the one-person show format. So, Colin, first of all, I just want to talk about the show that you're doing on tour right now. It's called... The Last Best Hope. Tell me about this, how it materialized, and are you the last best hope is what I want to know. That's exactly right. Colin Quinn, the last <laughs> best hope. And, yeah, because it materialized just because, I mean, it's, look, you know and I know so much of it is stand-up. Like, when people say one-man show, we're stand-ups, and we're yeah. raised in stand-up, but we like to be thematic. So you can't be thematic in a comedy club for an hour, you kind of have to digress. You have to talk to the crowd. You have to deal with different situations. You can't just be thematic, which is good. Yeah. You don't want to just stick to the script completely because that's not how we think or, or want to live. But this new show is an extension of Red State, Blue State. It's about how this country is basically shot, hoisted by our own success. And every country has their has their thing, you know? It's not like we're unique. But... In our own way, how we're falling apart, you know. Right. Well, the show that you did before, I haven't seen this one. I'm going to go see it Thursday night, January 13th at the uh, Wilbur Theater here in Boston. 
uh, and I'm looking forward to that. But I did see the other one, the your previous one, Red State, Blue State, and that was really about the divide in the country. So I'm curious, as you travel around the country, what are you seeing? Because you're, you're in not just uh, New York and Boston and, and L.A., you're all over the place. So what are you yeah. seeing around the country? Social media just makes everyone see it all the time. It's like having the lights on 24-7. I just see a, a bunch of states that are like, no, this is not what I consider the way I want to live. And that's every state and every person. That's an issue. Right. So they all have their local desires, right? Around everything from education to taxes to the legalization of pot to everything. To culture itself. Yeah. Yeah. Even something as simple as cursing. I remember years ago going to like somewhere in rural Indiana and I was doing a show and just casual. I don't curse that much in my act. And this lady came up to me afterwards and she goes, you're a real potty mouth. <laughs> and I started laughing and she was dead serious. I was like, oh yeah, people don't curse as much in the Midwest as they do in some places where we hang out, you know? Definitely. I can remember doing uh, the punchline in Columbia, South Carolina, and I got the same feedback. I don't swear a lot either in the I show. I know you don't, yeah. I used the term at the time, God damn. And that was like, this is the Bible belt, and God damn is like worse than the F-bomb. Right, like you're damning God, yeah. Highly offensive, highly offensive, yeah. and a lot of people... You know, people complained about it. And this was a place where people are drinking. It was a nightclub, but it yes. was also in the mid-80s in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Yes. So that's definitely one distinction. I think, would you agree that most of the country or a lot of the places that you're going to are just angry at the media? Would you say that they look at the media as like the enemy or? Yeah, yeah. They don't even want anything to do with the media. They want nothing to do with it. They have their own media and that's it the local news, local television, any places in particular that you were both really well-received or really not well-received that come to mind? No, I mean, my whole thing is that I am by nature a both-sideser. So that's the enemy of today's society, as you know. To be mm -hmm. a both-sideser is to be the ultimate sellout. But that's just my nature. So my goal is I'm giving my opinion and trying to make you laugh. And that's it. I don't care who agrees with me. I don't care who disagrees with me. I don't care who thinks I'm a capitulator. I don't care. I advertise myself as a comedian first. Yeah. If the crowd's laughing, I did my job. If they're not laughing, I didn't do it. It's very simple. You're being true to yourself because there are two sides to most issues. That's how I feel, yeah. But tell that to anybody in the country. <laughs> true. But you know what I, I love about you, not only your personality and, and the way you work and the commitment to your own material and your own path in comedy and entertainment and show business, but also your work ethic. I mean, you got an awesome work ethic. When you look at the number of shows you've done just in the last five years, five years, you got a book out, you got a, a couple of one-person shows. A couple, couple of shows, yeah. Well, I'm always writing for some reason. It became like a, uh, almost like an OCD thing in a good way, you know, where I'm always like, when I have free time, I just feel like writing. I love writing. So do you have a certain time of day that you do it? Do you get up and say, I got to do 10 to 11 or? No, if I did that, I'd be better off. But I, I just always feel like it's almost like a form of clarity to me where I'm like, what am I thinking about? What's going on? I start writing and I'm like, oh, that's how I feel about that. It's the strangest thing. I can't articulate my feelings about what goes on in the world unless I write it first. Interesting. 
So you won't have a preconceived conclusion until you put it on paper? I still don't have a conclusion. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, if you look at the history of the world, yeah. this is just one of 10,000 preludes to war that have happened in history. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is just our version of a breakup, a war, whether it's a civil war or England and France. This is what happens when people disagree and they're close enough to each other to fight. That's what I worry about. I feel like we're going to end up being like the West Bank all over the country. You're writing almost every day, would you say? Yeah. So you get an idea, you do it on a laptop, are you old school writing on a legal pad? I do a laptop, but if I go to work it out, then I write it on the cards. Yeah. I'll get the main thought down there, but because my laptop is full of thousands of rants. Right. It looks like Ted Kaczynski probably has a cleaner laptop than I do, you know? <laughs> it's probably more clear, you know? Right. But that's how it is, yeah. Right. So, for example, red state, blue state, how right. long did that take you to come up with? And then when did you start working on this new show? Because that's what intrigues me about your process. Even though you're doing red state, blue state, you're working on a new show while you're performing the old one. Well, yeah, because the a lot of the material that I cut out of red state, blue state, I'm like, oh, could this be part of that new show? And do I have to just rework it? Yeah. But they, as you know, how many hours do you have of material you never used? You yeah. use it twice, right? So there's all that stuff too. So I try to rummage through that sometimes and get some stuff. So once in a while, I'll have a a, a bit from 100 years ago, and then I'll just get a line out of it from now that could be. So it's a strange business because there's nobody ever set up, a maybe by the nature of how we are, nobody ever said, here's stand-up comedy done the right way. Here mm. are the rules of stand-up. It's right. the one business that does not have any of that. Right, which is liberating, but also can be challenging to find your way in the business. Because we're also ADD. You, know? <laughs> you have a favorite place in New York. Is it the cellar? Yeah, I love going to the cellar. And then you got to go up there with your notes and you got to bomb a little bit, you know. Yeah. To work out new stuff, I can't do it without bombing a little bit. You know what I mean? I do enough old stuff to make sure that they get laughs too, you know. I mean, that's about the hardest challenge, I think, breaking out new stuff is knowing that you're going to stammer through it, and it's not going to work perfectly the first right. time. But if you can get one laugh out of like two minutes out of that thought, then you got something anyway. But here's the other thing. There's two things, in my opinion, that can ruin your comedy set. One is fear. You can have, never have fear. You can never be embarrassed or scared when you're doing stand-up. The other one is you can't stammer. Now, as you know, I stammer. <laughs> I st My whole career is stammering. So I feel like I I have to really write material because I stammer naturally. But if they feel like you're stammering in a joke, even if you've gotten, I've, I've had it happen where you're doing a joke and you've done it 20 times and it kills. And then there's one time for whatever distraction you stammer, it never works. So when you said stammer, that really hit me. Yeah. When people get nervous on stage, they'll stammer. And then the audience just shuts down, you know. They shut, they sense fear. They sense, they sense lack of confidence. And if he's not confident, well, I'm not going to be confident in laughing at it. I always tell comedians, I go, young ones, you know, I go, you do not have the indulgence of feeling scared. No matter where you are, no matter who's coming at you, you cannot, you're not allowed to be scared. And even if you are, what do you do to overcome that fear? I mean, I think most of us have, you know, that not stage fright, but you're, you know, you got to get you got to get in the zone to go on stage. Like you're going up to bat. 
I guess I shouldn't say fear. I should say you never have the indulgence to be uncomfortable. Mm. So if I'm in a room and there's 30 people watching me and they're all people that hate me, my biggest enemies of my history of my life watching <laughs> me, I can't feel ashamed or uncomfortable. You know what I mean? You yeah. have to go, guess what? I don't care. I'm doing this and I'm going to be what I consider funny. Yeah. And if it doesn't get one laugh for an hour, I'm not going to ever flinch and be like, oh, guys, I'm sorry. This is awkward. No. <laughs> That's it. Colin, you know, one of the things I wanted to just thank you for and, and bring up, and one of the things that we uh, kind of bonded on early on is when, when we did meet, and there was a, you know, it was a big drinking scene in Boston and I oh. was a, you know, big drinker and everything. And you said to me, you said, Jimmy, you know, your problem in this business is alcohol. You said, if you ever quit drinking, I'll never forget this. You said, if you ever quit drinking, you could be a really big star. And yeah. I remember thinking a star, you know, if I become a really big star, I can drink all I want. Yeah. It's the type of business that's kind of competitive and your peers don't really say that to you. And especially if, if they're drinking a lot too, they're not oh. recognizing that. You had some clarity of mind. And I got to tell you, that one thing was uh, like a, a complete change in my perspective towards the business and towards my own life and career. So I just really wanted to thank you for that. And I, I know I've thanked you a million times, but yeah. I always want to thank you because it was so important just to lend some unsolicited advice to somebody that you saw that was having a hard time. Yeah, well, no, I mean, and of course, it, it helps me, too, as we both know. Yeah, that's how it works. But also, I had already quit drinking for a couple of years. And in those days, very few people were sober, you know. Right. I went up to Boston and I was there for about two days. And I said, thank God I didn't start comedy here. I would have been dead by 1986. <laughs> There's no way I would have lasted in that scene. Yeah. Because it was people are just on stage. The audience is doing coke. The whole place was a madhouse. <laughs> Everybody's drinking. Forget about drinking Coke everywhere. So, yeah, when I saw you, I was like, oh, this guy's so funny and so charismatic and so smart. But even for that scene, you stood out as a guy that people were like, oh, yeah, he's in bad shape. Yeah. And and you reached out. And I just appreciate that, man. Oh, uh, it was it's just a life changing conversation. And yeah. it was just kind of off the cuff, too. One of the things, Colin, I'm trying to do with this podcast and this show is, you know, I started a, a social enterprise a few years ago, Humor for Humanity, where you can actually use entertainment and comedy and, you know, the one-person shows or podcasts yeah. for purposes beyond just the entertainment value. Right. So for the people watching or listening, wherever you are, we're going to have a link here in the show notes that you can make a donation to a sober house here in uh, Malden, Massachusetts. A friend of mine started it a few years ago. This is an interesting thing, Colin. This gentleman, for years, he worked for the post office. We call him Pat the Mailman. He uh, worked for the post office for like 35 years. He retired. He said, I've always wanted to start a, a sober house for guys, in this case, men, coming out of early recovery. You know, you have to pay for these sober houses. Unfortunately, there's different, you know, formulas sure. for each one. This one anything we raise is going to go to scholarships for people who want to get sober, need a place to stay, but don't have the bank accounts because so many people have burnt their bridges just yeah. professionally and with their family lives. So that link to the um, Humor for Humanity will be in yeah. the show notes here. So Colin, I am excited. So thank you again for that. 
And thanks for your support of this show and Humor for Humanity. We'd love you to come back. I would love to come back. Yeah, next time you're coming through Boston, we'd love to have you talk about some other subjects. Anything else you want to let us know, Colin, about either your process or the new show? What do you hope for people to take away from your shows? I mean, honestly, I'm hoping that if I could get to a point to really have solutions, because, you know, comedy's fun, because so many comedians, they do their act, and there's a solution sometimes in their joke. And I'm yeah. like, that would actually work. And that's the fun part, too, as you know, of comedy. You were famous for always saying, how about do this, take this group and put them there. And yeah. you have all those. That's the kind of stuff that I love in comedy. Personally, you always had those great ones. By the way, one of the best jokes was it wasn't the solution one, but it was in that same set where you go, folks, nobody wants to register for a gun. It takes two weeks to get a phone. Right. And <laughs> But that's what I love about humor is. Instead of somebody scolding people, hmm. you're going, here's how I feel, but here's why you're listening to me. Because anybody can say, I disagree with this. You're making people laugh and going, oh, yeah, it does take a long time to get a phone. Yeah, right. Back in the 80s, they were arguing about a seven-day waiting period to, right. uh, to get a gun. And I was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I said, folks, a seven-day waiting period to get a gun, it takes three weeks to get a phone. And it's like one of those things that makes sense, that makes sense, and, and the audience can hear it. Yes, because it's funny. You're not, you're not talking down to people or scolding them or, or acting like, I'm, I know the answer. You're like, look, I'm just telling you my viewpoint, and it's going to be funny, and it's going to make sense. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff, when you hit those moments, you feel great, you know? Right. But it has to be funny, too, or else... Like I said, anybody goes on stage and scolds the crowd, I feel like it's taking advantage of your position and false advertising. Because you a sign that side says comedian. The description of a comedian is to elicit laughter. Mm -hmm. That's what a comedian is. The highest form may be to also say what you want to say. Doctors first do no harm, first get laughs. So when yeah. comedians are up there using the pulpit, advertise yourself as a philosopher if you're not planning on getting laughs. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> when I listen to certain comics, especially, you know, a lot of the black comics, Chris Rock, Chappelle, they have insights into being black. And, and gay comics, insights to being gay, as, as Hispanic, you know, new immigrants, insights to that life, those lived experiences. It seems to me that it's a, a great service when somebody's bringing something up that the general public might not even be aware of, but once you say it, it's like, aha, oh, I get it now. The larger question is, do you think that it's, you know, comedy can actually help heal the country rather than divide us? Do you think we can, you know, get to the point where we're trying to make a concerted effort to do better and to actually unite people around certain issues rather than drive us apart? No, because it's still <laughs> because it's still your lifestyle and your opinion. You know what I mean? Right. Even when Chappelle, Chris Rock, their insights don't even apply to all black people don't necessarily identify with what they're saying. Mm. So why would everybody in the country? You know, it's still people are still individuals. Yeah. So there's no sweeping truth for everybody in the world or even in the country or even in a comedy club. That's the problem with life. You know? Right. 
But when you have, you know, you have a thousand people in a theater laughing at the yeah. same time, even though, you know, you have people on the you know, red states and blue states, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, if they're at least for that moment, they're united in a common agreement that something is funny. I think that those days are over, but I do believe they existed. <laughs> now I see in comedy clubs, when you bring up su- subjects of consequence, yeah. everybody get almost a fixed look before they hear what you have to say. Yeah. And yeah, I know what you're saying. Yuma has a better shot than anything. In the grand scheme of things, I wish that was true. So far, it has not been proven to be true. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like everybody's like, yes, that was a show. And I appreciated the insight, but it's not world-changing wisdom in my life. Yeah. It's your life and the way you see things. I've had this experience. I've had this happen. And I have this obstacle here. Mm-hmm. While I love it, and I know what you're saying, it's not my exact truth. It's close enough where I can laugh at it, but it's not my aha moment of my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I found interesting, and tell me if you you have a similar experience. You can lose a crowd really quickly on the same bit that does really well just by mentioning a trigger word, just by mentioning a personality or a name or a a label. You can say the word Republican and lose half the crowd. You can say the word Democrat and lose the other half. It was especially true with the former president, but also the Obama the same way, Hillary the same way, Bill Clinton the same way, Obamacare, anything that elicits that reaction where the the steel door comes down and they can't hear it. So the trick is, one of the tactics is, don't mention those words. Go into the material without mentioning those people or those words. Right, or mention, sometimes you have to overly mention it and go, look, I know everybody argues over this. Yeah, right. Like now you almost have to preface things in a certain way because people are almost afraid you're trying to slip something in on them too. It's a very depressing time, you know, in my opinion, you know. Yeah. As far as this kind of stuff, but look, it's the way it is right now. That's how it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. How has your show been received? How how many have you done so far of the new show? Very very poorly. (laughs) If I get three laughs in an hour. (laughs) Well, folks, you want to rush to get tickets because it's coming to a town near you. And don't hesitate. He gets three laughs in 90 minutes. This is your chance. (laughs) So seriously, how has it been been received so far? It's great. But like you said, we noticed a little nuance of like, why do you have to be tense right now? It's not just those political people. There's a thousand words where people get a little bit like, where's this going? What's yeah. going on? And I can't even blame them because if they laugh at the wrong thing and their HR is in the audience, they're going to get fired. So it's, it's yeah. even that's involved too. Right. Everything's crazy. I don't know. You know what, Colin, uh, you'll appreciate this. The election of the campaign of 2016, the presidential campaign, I was booked for like four or five dates, corporate events around the country. In Florida, and the name of the show, they wanted political humor. They they thought they wanted political humor, okay? <laughs> the show I was doing was Jimmy Tingle for President. So I got booked in Florida, Texas, Arizona, oh. Southern oh. California, and, and Northern California. This isn't the general public. These are corporations, and they're there oh. for their company picnic or whatever. Out right. in, 
and you're doing their thing. So they're naturally tense anyway. And they're inhibited in terms of, like you said, the HR department or the CEOs there or their yeah. boss. Or the... So I'm doing my my thing. And this is how I learned about the certain words, how you can just alienate a whole crowd. So I inadvertently was not doing as well on stage as I could do. That's as simple as that. Yeah. But I could feel a tenseness and a just a, the audience recoiling from what I was saying. And every gig, I'm saying, geez, what am I doing wrong? And I finally got up to Bakersfield, California. I was actually in uh, Kevin McCarthy's district. And it's, uh, you know, he's the, the guy from the Republican sure. minority leader of the House right now. Anyway, I'm in his district, and they're all ranchers. I said to the woman who picked me up at the station, I said, how is this audience, how are they demographically? I'm thinking it's 50-50. It's California. Yeah. She goes, oh, we're heavy Trump country, wow. very strong Trump country. I said, really? She goes, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, this is the largest concentration of Christian schools in the country. Wow. I took that information. I had like three hours before I go on. I go, how am I going to deal with three, 400 ranchers who are heavily Christian? And what I ended up doing is I did all this personal stuff, growing up Catholic, trying to quit drinking, using the higher power to help me quit drinking, all these things that were personal that had nothing to do with politics so much, but a personal connection to them. By the time I got to, you know, immigration, which they support immigration reform, they're all ranchers, that's who's doing, working on all these farms. By the time I got to those issues, they could hear me. Yes. And they can appreciate where I was coming from. And yep. at the end of it, you know, I don't want to leave my first podcast blowing my own horn, Colin. But by the end of the show, there was a standing ovation. That's all I'm going to say. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yes. The personal story can go a long way, even though the material on the yeah. outside might seem very, very uh, political. And when you're coming from a, your own experience, then it can just resonate with people more so than just the punditry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So, Colin, I'm looking forward to seeing your show this Thursday night in Boston, January 13th. Folks, if you are in another state, and I hope you are listening, or another city, the show The Last Best Hope, starring Colin Quinn, is traveling, touring the country. Go to ColinQuinn.com. That's where you can find out his schedule. He's a great guy, a great comic, a really unique voice in this very divided time. And as you said, he's coming from personal experience, but he's also coming from there's two sides to every issue. And he might not think it, but I think it, that comedy and humor and goodwill can help unite this nation, ladies and gentlemen. Colin Quinn, I love you. Thank you so much for being here for the first Tingle Podcast. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Great job. Thank you.